Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, July 25th. Canada has consistently fallen short of its obligation to NATO to spend 2% of GDP on the military. Is it feasible to get to 2% and what sort of an impact would it have if we hit that target? We discuss with Eugene Lang, professor from the School of Policy Studies at Queen's University. Do you know what it looks like when someone is drowning? Do you know how to respond if you see someone struggling in the water? We get some water safety tips in recognition of World Drowning Prevention Day with Jonathan Casianto of the Life Saving Society of Alberta and Northwest Territories. And finally, if you're in the market for a new vehicle, prepare to be shocked by the prices. We find out what's behind the record high prices for new cars and trucks with Barish Akurek. VP of Insights and Intelligence with AutoTrader. Is it feasible for Canada to meet NATO obligations and spend 2% of our GDP on our military? And what sort of an impact would this make on the global stage? Joining us to discuss is Eugene Lang, Assistant Professor, School of Policy Studies, Queen's University and Fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Uh, Good morning to you, sir. Good morning. Well, let's let's get to the root of the, the uh, controversy surrounding this, and this is uh, uh, our nation consistently falling short of the 2% GB, uh, GDP target for military spending, and uh, we pledged it, I can't believe this when I'm reading it, almost 10 years ago in 2014. So why have we fallen short? Uh, it's not been a priority for governments, and frankly, it's not a priority for Canadians. If you look at uh, public opinion surveys going back 20, 25 years that rank anywhere, you know, 10, 15 of the major priorities for Canadians. Defense spending's never in the top two or three. It's usually in the bottom eight or nine. So in that sense, I guess politicians are reflecting public opinion, and they haven't made a case for it since uh, Canada did sign on, as you pointed out, to the NATO Wales Declaration in 2014, committing to getting our defense spending over time up to 2% of GDP, which is a big number. And we really haven't done anything in the last 10 years to move that needle. So now it's almost, in a way, you could argue it's almost unrealistic in in any kind of short time frame to get it up to 2% of GDP because we've done so little in the intervening 9 or 10 years. What would you say might be the political or, excuse me, potential fiscal implications for Canada if, if we did increase military spending by that $20 billion a year approximately? It's big. Um, if you, the way they calculate defense spending in NATO or Canada does, our contribution, they include all the money that's spent in the Department of National Defense, of course, and they also roll in veterans' benefits, Coast Guard, and a few other things. So if you roll all that up, you're probably looking at, we're probably spending somewhere around, grosso modo, $35 billion a year. To get it to 2%, we'd have to spend about $60 billion a year. And then, of course, it's a moving target because GDP grows. So you've got to keep it at 2%, meaning you've got to increase it with GDP growth every year. If you figure, you know, a reasonable assumption, nominal GDP growth, let's say around 3%, you're looking at increasing it at about a billion dollars a year every year once you get it up to that. So it has a huge fiscal impact on the government. And, uh, you know, the the Trudeau government isn't known for its fiscal probity, uh, and as a result, they're running significant deficits now. I think the deficit's... Is around $40 billion or so, um, and not projected to come down until a couple of years out, come down as a percentage of GDP. So it, it, it's a big, big fiscal hit, and it would squeeze out, crowd out a lot of other priorities for, for frankly, all of the political parties. You know, None of them are really enamored with 2% of GDP, neither the, the Conservatives, the Liberals, or certainly the NDP.
So when we look at this, and uh, there was an obligation that we made to to NATO, are we the only country that is shirking, so to speak, our responsibilities? No, no we're not. There are others. Um, but uh, we're probably the only G7 country um, that really has no intent to get there. Um, you know, my own view on this is, the bigger problem right now at the Department of National Defense, and one of the reasons why they can't convince anyone in the government to give them a lot more money, is they can't spend the appropriation they have now. Uh, last year, for example, 2020, 2021, 2022 fiscal year, they underspent, or to use the term, uh, the nomenclature, lapsed $2.5 billion of their appropriation. That's about almost 10%. For whatever reason, the department has had a very hard time spending its appropriation over the last 15 years. And they got to fix that because anytime they go into budget discussions with the Department of Finance or the Prime Minister's office and they ask for more money, I am certain the first thing that comes up is, well, you can't spend the money you have now. You're not spending your existing appropriation. Why would we give you more when we have all these other pressures? So. That's something that the Department of National Defense has got to sort out, and as far as I can tell, they've 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 spent very little of their efforts over the years to try and sort that problem out. So, wherein lies the problem, then, Professor? I mean, is it just basically does it come down to the Department of Defense or those who are running it? Is it the federal government or a combination of? It's a com- it's a complex stew of problems, I think, that have built up over time. Um, there's no sort of simple story about why we're at where we're at on that issue. The Department of National Defense believes there's a simple story and they'll say things like, well, it's all industry's fault because companies aren't delivering on time and therefore we can't pay them as we're scheduled for equipment and we underspend this money. There might be something to that, but that's not. That's by no means the major source of the problem. There are huge issues, as everybody seems to know, with the way we do defense procurement in Canada and there are all kinds of other issues with the way defense funding is managed. And, we're, and the, the administration, I guess, of the department, um, such that they can't spend their appropriation. Um, and, you know, that's a separate issue from the 2%, but you can see the linkage. Mm-hmm. I think there's a logic to try and understand that linkage. It's very difficult mm-hmm. for the Defense Department to make a compelling argument within the federal government in a context of fierce competition for very limited resources. It's always like that in government. Um when they can't spend their existing appropriation. Okay, well, it's, uh, I want to bring it back before that you go, Professor Lang, to our commitment to NATO that was, you know, made almost 10 years ago, back in 2014. Is, could we get some blowback for this? Like, in a, any organization, if you agree to certain terms or even, you know, make certain promises, so to speak, and, and you don't hit them, you know, you could expect blowback. Could we not? Yeah, well, we should be delivering on it. As I said, I mean, we should have started chipping away at this 10 years ago and had a credible plan to build to 2% over a decade, let's say, that was realistic. Nobody did that. I mean, the government that signed on to the 2% um, disavowed that just a couple of years after they signed on to it. That was the Harper government. And the current government has disavowed it as well, even though they recently signed on to it again. They more or less disavowed it. There needs to be a credible plan put in place to get that budget up over time, but there also needs to be administrative reforms made tackled within the government of Canada to make sure that the department can spend the money. Because there's big problems in the military, as you know, in Canada around, particularly around recruitment and retention. The size of the force is probably at a historic low. 
could be as low as in the low 50,000s in the regular forest. And if it is that low, that's the lowest it's been certainly in two generations, if not since before the Second World War. So there's all kinds of problems with recruitment and retention. There's all kinds of problems with procurement. And these things need to be tackled in addition to having a credible plan to get up to 2% over time, because I think you're quite right. It's noticed within NATO. Canada becomes a marginal force, a marginal country within the alliance. We were not marginal about a dozen years ago when we were playing a major role in Afghanistan, which was a NATO mission. Even though our percentage of GDP spending was even lower than it is today, we were carrying a very heavy load um, in that NATO mission, and we had a lot of sway around the table. I think those days are long gone. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor. Appreciate your take this morning. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Eugene Lang, Assistant Professor at the School of Public Policies, Queen's University, as well as a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. It has been hot. We've been very lucky to have outdoor pools, the river running through our city, a couple of them, in fact. Uh, relief from the heat. But do you know the risks associated with activities around water? Joining us to keep the family safe on World Drowning Prevention Day is... Jonathan Cusianto, Executive Director of Life Saving Society, Alberta and Northwest Territories Branch. Good morning to you, Jonathan. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. Can you explain the significance? Because I think we all know the importance of learning water safety, learning the skill of swimming. Uh, But we've got a day to focus on it, World Drowning Prevention Day. How did this day come to be? Yeah, in uh, April 28th, 2021, the United Nations General Assembly adopted a historic resolution on drowning prevention. Uh, The resolution recognizes the scale and impact of drowning and calls for coordinated action to prevent the leading cause of injury-related disability and death worldwide. Uh, A key component of that resulted in World Drowning Prevention Day, which occurs annually on this day today, uh, July 25th. Did you say drowning is the leading cause of death around the world? It is a a leading cause of injury-related disability and death. Um, You know, and and the key piece is the majority of these incidents are preventable. Uh, These Mm -hmm. are preventable injuries and deaths, and that's part of today, right? We invite and encourage all to contribute to and engage in raising awareness of the importance of drowning prevention and the need for urgent action as a collective to improve water safety. Okay, so can you tell me then, you know, do we have stats in terms of how common water-related injuries or death might be in, in our province here in Alberta? Yeah, so annually we see over 400 Canadians um, die from drowning and water-related incidents. On average, that includes about 30 Albertans. And this comes from about a 20-year analysis uh, that we did on drowning, uh, both fatal and non-fatal. Uh, so, it, you know, as much as this is a global campaign, this is also very much a local problem for us. I'm kind of shocked, Jonathan, to see the stat that uh, it's the third highest cause of unintentional death among Canadians over the age of 60. I would have thought we'd be very much lasered in on the, the youngsters out there, maybe don't have a good grip on swimming, for example, or have not even taken a swimming class. Uh, but the age, that, that surprises me. Are you surprised by that stat? Yeah, so, I mean, if you look back years and years and years, you know, even back to the 50s, it's generally the same people that are that are drowning. It's, it's very young children. Uh, you know, the messaging around that, 
uh, with, you know, within arm's reach, uh, you know, active supervision that that has gotten better over the years. Uh, but it's it's a lot of, you know, um, males typically aged 20 to 44, you know, as they're most more likely to, to make risks and, and not always make the best decisions around water. And, and unfortunately, you know, the, the trends haven't changed over the many decades. It's, it's still it's still the same people. And so it's really important that we, we continue to promote the awareness and, and hit our key messages when it comes to water safety. What do we do better, Jonathan? I mean, you know, it really comes down to, I would think, swimming lessons starting at a young age for for young people or for older people who don't know how to swim. Swimming lessons seems to be that it should be the basic key here, is it not? Yeah, so learning to swim is is one of the best preventative measures. Um, so, you know, we do encourage people to reach out to their, their local pool or facility and register for those life-saving society swimming lessons or life-saving programs. But the other piece to that is, is knowing your limits, right? So a lot of the majority of drownings, drowning incidents happen in unsupervised uh, natural bodies of water so it's really important that people are aware of the hazards um, and know their limits and if the area is not designed or made for safe swimming probably not the best idea to go in um, you know even if you are extremely strong swimmer cold water temperature and and specifically moving water like rivers and with currents can really really take you over it quickly and you could go down or something could go wrong in a matter of seconds um this year what we're calling for is we want everyone to do one thing to help prevent drowning and that could be as simple as you know registering for swimming lessons or wearing your life jacket while you're out boating or floating um or as little as just wearing blue today and what you'll notice is if you look around the city in calgary uh, the Calgary Tower, as well as the Telespark Center, uh, will be lit up in blue. Wow, incredible. It's powerful, and it's uh, one day to, to very much focus, although we should obviously be cognizant the other 364 days. Thanks for your time, Jonathan. Yeah, thank you for having me. And remember, anyone can drown, and, and no one should. And it takes a, a community to create a water-smart culture. That's a great message. Thank you so much. That's Jonathan Cusianto, Executive Director of Life Saving, Life Saving Society, Alberta and Northwest Territories. Um, I'm in it right now with my kids, and we cannot get enough. And actually, I, I my wife corrected me because we have a couple more opportunities before the end of the year to get the kids at the local pool signed up for lessons. They, mm-hmm. They're continuing their trek through. They both can't swim, but they're mm-hmm. getting closer and closer, right? And I said, well, that's a lot to go back to back and then also have, you know, for example, Sparks, for example, dance class. For, yep. And I thought, well, let's, let's be honest. We booked those other things. But more important, I've, I've said, and I don't mean this in jest in any way, shape, or form, that it's number one on my list because you can't drown playing soccer or doing dance. 100%. It's a, it's not just, but also the recreational aspect of it. Everybody needs that skill, I, I think. I mean, you go to a pool. You want to hang out with your friends. You need to know how to swim. But I 100% agree with you. That was something, there was just simply no, it was it was not an option. Yep. It was a necessity for my kids. They took swimming lessons, and they know how to swim, and they're good swimmers. And that's just the way it is. There's no two ways about it. You don't get a choice here. This is going to happen because ultimately it will potentially save your life. And we have, you and I have a friend, Sandra, yes. who learned to swim 
in her 50s. Yep, taking the lessons in the past handful of years. So, I mean, any age can learn how to swim. There, you know, you it doesn't it's not just a young kids thing. Anybody yeah. can learn how to swim. And anybody, even if you're a good swimmer, you can get into trouble. So the fact of, you know, what Jonathan was saying is really yep. important, especially in a river. Huge. I went whitewater rafting many years ago. First time I'd gone whitewater rafting here in Alberta. And at the end of it, you know, sort of you're past the you're past the rapids and you're in calmer river. And they say, hey, if you want to jump out and just float down the river, go for it. No problem. I consider myself a strong mm-hmm. swimmer. I jumped out and it was so cold because I didn't realize here Oof. in Alberta how cold the oh, water is. Yeah. What a and, trick. And it took it literally took the wind out of me so I could not breathe and I started to panic. And thank goodness that, you know, I ended up in a shallower area. But it's amazing how fast it can happen, and, and you're in trouble. And, and you don't drown with your arms flailing in the air like we see on television. You drown quietly. It's crazy when you think about it. And, and I'm just slipping under the water, and it, it can happen really you fast. You're telling me that story, I feel sick to my stomach. Yeah. Because, you know, we, I've been through something like that when I was just rafting with my brother, and I got caught under some mm. some branches, and I tried to get up, and he was above me, and I couldn't get up. And, and the feeling and it's the dread. horrifying. And, and, you know, the, you have a good point there, Sue, in that not only you have know how to swim – Chances are you're going to be in a position at some point where you're taken off guard yeah. and you lose your breath and you're stuck in some, or you're out of energy. Mm-hmm. Um, so do all you can and, uh, you know, reflect on that today. And uh, if you've not taken a swim lesson, even if you're just you're not so young but young at heart, yeah. you can do it. Absolutely. And if you're looking for a new vehicle, it will likely cost you a pretty penny. Yes, sticker shock is a thing. Joining us to discuss what's behind the high prices for the average new vehicle is Barish Akurek, who is Vice President of Insights and Intelligence at Auto Trader. Hi, Barish. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Is there still a supply chain problem to partially blame for the crazy car industry prices right now? Because they sure seem to be out of whack, don't they? Yeah, supply chain problems have been improving uh, in the last while. Uh, the situation is getting better and better every day, but uh, compared to uh, uh, where the inventory was, uh, availability was, we are still uh, a bit uh, far out. So things are improving, but there's uh, a bit more to go. So is it simply supply and demand bearish? Is that what we're getting down to here? Yeah, no, pretty much. Uh, that's That's, that's, a good good really good summary of what's going on so demand has been pretty strong since the beginning of the pandemic um you know uh, summer of 2020 we've started seeing quite a bit of an increase in and uh, demand uh, for obvious reasons um you know based on our research um consumers didn't want to take public transportation and ride-sharing services and there was a you know demand increase on private vehicle ownership and that demand has been pretty consistent since then. And on the supply side, as we all know, uh, supply chain disruptions and uh, microchip shortages and whatnot, uh, between 2020 and the end of 2022, we estimate that 1.3 million fewer new cars were sold. So obviously when there's fewer cars sold, uh, new cars sold, it directly impacts the uh, used market as well. So both uh, new and used prices are therefore uh, up compared to where they used to be. Bears, do you have any stats through Auto Trader in terms of what prices look like here in Alberta and how that might compare to the rest of the country, for example? Yeah, I can uh, I can definitely give you the high levels. So looking at so nationally speaking, average price of a new car is sixty six thousand two hundred and eighty eight dollars, and that is a twenty one point three percent year over year increase for new. 
And for used, we're looking at uh, just below 40, 45, and that's a 4.1% year-over-year increase. So looking at Alberta specifically, uh, the situation is slightly better in terms of year-over-year increases at 18%, but the average price of a new car in Alberta is uh, almost 70000 at 69764 All right. And so, on the use... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no, you keep going. I thought you'd finish your thought. Okay. And the use on, again, looking at uh, use price in Alberta, uh, it is $42,236, and that is a 2.9% year-over-year increase. All right. So that's where we are. That's what we've been experiencing. What about projections from you folks at Auto Traders? Uh, what, can you, what can you tell us as, as far as what we can expect used and new-wise? Are we expecting to see things get back down to earth? Yeah, we don't really do like forecasting per se, but obviously we know what's happening in the market. And what we expect to see is that now looking at uh, North American production levels, it's been improving, as I said, since um, uh, August of 2022. So there's more and more cars coming down to the market, which is good. And on a year-over-year basis, we are up uh, 58%. Uh, but compared to where the inventory was, new inventory was in 2019, uh, we are still down by 46%. So, as I said, uh, there's a bit more to go. But uh, uh, what we believe is that when the demand and supply, they kind of align, uh, hopefully sometime soon, we'll probably see some sort of softening in, in, in prices. Having said that, we do not expect uh, the prices to go back to uh, pre-COVID levels anytime soon. Really? Like everything else, Barish, right? It just costs more and more. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Appreciate it. No problem. Thank Thanks you. a lot. Bye-bye. Bye. Eric Akurek is the vice president of insights and intelligence at Auto Trader. I have heard that from people. Just it's outrageous right now trying to find a new car. Well, gone are the days of 0% financing for sure. But prices are still super, super high as much as they were during the pandemic, maybe even higher. I am maybe super naive. And uh, you know, I'm the first one. Well, you, how often do you buy a new car? Maybe if you make Sudial dollars, yeah. and buy a new car every year or two. But like maybe what if on average five years would it five be? or ten years? Yeah. And for me, and it, it was literally I bought used over the past several years, but for the first time a, a few months ago, bought new. Um, and before that, it would have been yeah, it would have been twenty thirteen. So you, you get used to you know well, what's what's old is not what's new is not what's old because it had changed from zero percent. That was my old financing. Then now you're lucky to get uh, six and a half to almost eight percent. Mm. Huge difference. That's unbelievable. And the prices, I was uh, shocked and, and gobsmacked at the trucks, for example. No, I'm not a big truck guy, but I uh, looked at some of these prices of uh, sixty-eight to one hundred ten thousand dollars for a truck. You know, and I remember my first condo. I think was eighty-five, <laughs> eighty-six thousand dollars. Yeah, twenty years ago. Ah, uh, things have changed. Uh, but if you need that wheels, you need wheels. That's the thing. And and is, this city of Calgary, I think, is is one of those cities where, you know, at this point anyway, you need a car. Yeah. To I really kind of so. get around.